0: Welcome to another episode of Neuropodcases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hi everybody, my name's Josh Fulton, I'm one of the clinical fellows currently working at the Walton Centre. And we've been joined today by Dr. James Lillica, he's one of the consultant neurologists at Salford Royal Hospital, who has a particular specialist interest in neuromuscular disorders. So good. good afternoon today, Dr. Lillica. Hi, thanks, Josh. So the way we're going to run this today, we're going to ask a few questions about a general approach to the neuromuscular patients with a focus on a myopathic patient, patient if you like. And then we've got some cases to discuss as well at the end. So mm. I guess to get us started, so before we discuss your clinical approach to myopathy, can we first of all discuss what are the potential causes for a myopathy and how you might divide them up?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable starting point. Um, everyone has a different approach to this. I think in my mind, I'd, I'd first separate things out into genetic or hereditary, and then um, and then acquired causes. And the difficult thing about the genetic causes is that they can really present at any stage in life. They're not limited to just childhood onset disorders. Um, but if you take something like myotonic dystrophy, for example, you can have, uh, you know, fl- babies born as floppy babies, ranging from on- onset in childhood, ranging to milder onset quite late on in life. So it, you can't really base it uh, purely on their, on their age of onset. Um, and then the other big, um, big category would be the, the acquired causes. Um, be that the inflammatory myopathies, which is a, a group I take a particular interest in, but then there's other acquired causes as well, maybe related to toxins and statins being a relatively uh, relatively common one, or a myopathy related to endocrine uh, disorders um, like uh, um, hypothyroidism. Uh, so they're, they're the two big categories I tend to divide things up to, uh, into first.
0: Sure, and I guess as you say, you've, you've divided them up into the the big categories of hereditary and acquired. And you mentioned from the story, I guess, especially with genetic, which is quite interesting that it can present any age. Mm. But are there any key points in the history that you might look out for in a myopathy patient?
1: Yeah. So if you if you if you're suspecting a, a genetic or hereditary myopathy, you obviously would want to ask about the family history. Um, but you'd bear in mind that sometimes that can be negative. A lot of these disorders are, are recessive or have uh, incomplete uh, penetrance or just present de novo. So, you know, if you take scapulo humeral FSH muscular dystrophy, you know, about 30% of those cases, even though it's autosomal dominant, will be de novo. Uh, but you would ask about family history anyway. And you, you, and you don't just say... Uh, does anyone in the family have a muscular dystrophy? You'd sort of say, did anyone in the family struggle with their mobility or use a walking aid or stick or wheelchair at, at an early age? Um, then you'd ask about their motor milestones. So, um, you know, how were they at learning how to walk and run and skip and jump and things like that? How were they at sports at school? Uh, you might ask a little bit about their very early history. You know, uh, did they have problems when they were born? Were they, were they a, 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 you know, a floppy baby or had to stay in hospital for a, for a while? Um, so they're good things uh, to get out of the history. The other thing, and then maybe leaning more towards the acquired um, side as well, might be a history of exposure to certain uh, to certain toxins. And we talked about statins uh, briefly uh, already. You might want to ask about uh, rash as well, thinking particularly about dermatomyositis or anti-synthetase uh, syndromes. Um, and there's another. Um, area as well as the is the metabolic myopathies and this this can be tricky so patients often present with exercise intolerance um, and myalgia it's quite difficult sometimes to separate that out from your fibromyalgic uh, patient but one thing that can be useful is is if they've got a a history of recurrent rhabdomyolysis and history that's usually fairly um, sort of straightforward to to elicit, or if they've got painful contractures after exercise, as well as you often see in the Cardinal's disease, for example. So, there'd be some of the key things I'd be covering in the in the history.
0: Okay, that's really useful. And I guess to counteract that, so are there any aspects of the history or exam that might point you away from a myopathic process?
1: Yeah, now that's uh, that's a good a good question. Um, it, it's tricky. So, um, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of cramping um, uh, is often neurogenic rather than myopathic in origin, but you can sometimes get caught out with the with the metabolic uh, myopathies, um, uh, for example. And teasing these issues apart, you know, in, in the pa- the patient with myalgia um, is 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 really um, is really quite uh, difficult, and sometimes you do have to go on to to investigate these patients to to really try and exclude any. Uh, Underlying myopathic illness um, and maybe move things towards a a diagnosis of fibromyalgia or something uh, along those lines, uh, perhaps. Um, What else might uh, I mean? I mean, obviously, the the typical thing with the myopathies is the proximal muscle weakness you know issues uh, lifting the arms of the head um issues around the, the pelvic girdle maybe going up and down the stairs or getting up from a low chair but you just do have to be wary sometimes about distal weakness so myotonic dystrophy is the other example there where where, where distal weakness is, is obviously um obviously very very common um what else in the history you might point i mean ov- obviously um if you if you got any symptoms suggestive of central nervous system involvement then that points you very much away from a um, from a myopathy i guess fatigability is something that's difficult as well occasionally you get mixed up with a, a patient with with some uh, some uh, a myasthenic presentation or perhaps a lambert eaton type presentation where there's where there's fatigue that's manifesting as kind of a pseudo myopathy um and to try and tease that apart can be can be quite difficult um and and yeah often relies on doing more investigations as well to look into that a bit further
0: and I guess so how would you approach the examination and I guess specifically is there anything that when you're suspecting a mild clue is there anything you do additionally
1: to your standard neurological examination Yeah. See, I mean you're right you would start with the standard exam but we we it is one clinic where you do have to expose the, the patient uh, you want to look at their muscles so you do need to get them ex, uh, uh, undressed and, and have a good look at their uh, at their shoulder girdle look for any scapular instability and scapular winging um uh, look at the muscle muscle bulk uh, generally and is there a certain pattern of muscle wasting um you know for example in ibm you often see that the very typical wasting of the volar aspect of the forearm and the anterior thigh muscles you can sort of pick that up from the end of the bed and uh, you, you you do look more for sort of other skeletal skeletal deformities as well, you know, is there, is there a hyperlordosis, are there contractures and things like that? The other thing that I spend a lot of time doing is, is looking for any subtle signs of connective tissue disease. So this is this is thinking more along the lines of inflammatory myopathy. So you, you'd, you'd look closely for any rash, particularly on the elbows, knees, knuckles, that sort of thing look for look at their hands very carefully looking for the mechanics hands in anti synthesis syndrome look at their their nail beds and the periungal capillaries you know are they have they got ragged um cuticles and and um uh, nail bed uh infarcts that might suggest some form of um connective tissue uh disease um i do uh A general neurological examination as well. I I do look at their cranial nerves. You know, could there be some mitochondrial cytopathy that's got myopathy as part of the syndrome? So you know, look at their eye movements, look at the back of their eye, uh, check they've not got any ptosis. Um, I think they're the they're the they're the sort of main uh, things I I focus on in addition to your to your to your general examination.
0: I mean we've mentioned a broad range of differential diagnoses for myopathy. I know it's a broad topic. Yeah. Do you have any sort of routine investigations? For all patients,
1: you might send up as a as a basic screen before you do like further testing. Um, yeah, I, I we often will send um, a CK level as a, as a basic screen. I mean, in general, I'm kind of against screening for myopathies in the, just in the sense that they're quite rare diseases. So if you're in a context of uh, you know low pretest probability, probably testing the CK can sometimes sort of open up a, a can of worms um but but you know in a setting where you're suspecting a myopathy a ck is a useful starting point point. and in most myopathies it's raised but not all so it's not a perfect test um uh, in terms of sensitivity and it's also not a perfect test in specificity terms either because it can be raised in patients with you know motor neuron disease or other neurogenic problems for example um but that, that's a re- reasonable starting point before going on to things like neurophysiology Muscle imaging with, we tend to use MRI in the UK, but a lot of ultrasound is done in other countries. Um, and, then, uh, and then muscle biopsy and, and genetic testing uh, as well.
0: Okay. Now, just to so briefly touch back upon the CK you mentioned, I know you may obviously said about over the kind of worms with the testing of it, but especially in asymptomatic patients, do you have a threshold perhaps of a value in your mind or do, do you have a value that you think to yourself, maybe there might be more at play here with a CK?
1: When, when we've looked back at our cohort, it, it's, it, it's often uh, the patients with a CK level of less than about a 1,000 where we struggle to make a, a diagnosis of a, of a particular neuromuscular disorder. So in my mind, that's often a bit of a threshold. But um, the advice is generally if the level is less than 1.5 times the upper limit of normal after a period of rest, then the likelihood of there being a serious cause for it is very low. Um, so the first thing I often do is, and, and this is particularly in the patient that's perhaps um, into their long distance running or bodybuilding and stuff, is get them to rest for a good few weeks and mm-hmm. check it again. And if it's less than uh, 1.5 times the upper of normal for your lab, then it's probably just physiological. And you do have to take into account their general body habitus. You know, well-built people will just naturally have a higher CK. Uh, black people males have a higher ck than caucasians and females so you, you have to um and yet the lab just gives a standard number for the normal range so you do have to kind of interpret the normal range in the in the context of the of the patient's demographics
0: okay so obviously that's some of the um well that's uh, well serum tests that are sent quite frequently and i, I know you, you did mention further tests such as emg or a muscle biopsy even. I mean, I guess first off with EMG, do you you have any certain, what role do you you normally use for EMG? Is it between all patients with an EMG or do you use a more targeted approach?
1: Yeah, that's a a good question. Um, And it it sort of leans on the fact that uh, some patients with a myopathy, you you can't necessarily confirm myopathic findings. I I mean, I think most of my patients do end up having, nerve conduction studies in an EMG done at some point. And, and you can occasionally get a, a kind of slam dunk diagnosis where, you know, for example, you find some myotonia in someone you subject, suspect has got a, um, a channelopathy um, or, or, or something like that. And it, and it's useful to exclude other uh, causes of their presentation. So, you know, to, to exclude a lot of uh, active denervation or, so, or something like that, or a severe neuropathy um, as, a, as a contributing uh, factor in their in their muscle weakness so um i, I yeah it, it's um it's it's an interesting test and it obviously depends a lot on who's doing it as well and you, you do need a good relationship with your neurophysiology colleagues um and um and in a similar way to what we mentioned about the ck there are issues in relation to sensitivity and specificity um, and I, I definitely wouldn't regard it as like a screening test for myopathy um, it's a bit like doing an EEG in, in epilepsy. You're doing it more to kind of subdivide the syndrome rather than just a screen for epilepsy in general. Uh, and I think the EMG is a bit similar in muscle disease, really. So I think we'll move on now
0: to a few cases, if that's all right. So yeah, great. We'll just get uh, stuck in and uh, any questions, any further information, just let me know. So, um, so the first one we've got is a 49 year old female who presents with a four month history of progressive muscle weakness. So she's struggling to walk upstairs and describes aching of her muscles. She's otherwise well and not on any regular medications. On examination, she's proximally weak in her upper and lower limbs. So from that case, Vignette, is there anything else you might want to know from the story?
1: OK, so um, uh, so we've got a, a four-month history. It sounds like some uh, proximal weakness from the history and on the examination and a bit of aching. And Yeah, and it's... Um, i'm assuming there's no no prior history we've asked about those kind of red flags for genetic myopathies no childhood onset symptoms no previous episodes of rhabdomyolysis or sort of other episodes of unexplained um uh, muscle weakness so you, you you might be thinking more about an acquired myopathy you know thinking about the the the, the timeline in, involved there so first on 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 my list is, is around the inflammatory myopathies you know, is there there a rash, are there any other skin changes, is there any other extra muscular involvement to do with, um, you know, perhaps interstitial uh, lung disease or or something along those uh, lines, so I think they'd be the first things I'd be asking.
0: Okay, and I guess with, just to elaborate a little bit on the rash elements that you talked about, so is there any particular rash that would be of interest?
1: um so there are some um uh classic rashes of 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 dermatomyositis um so the heliotrope um and and the Gottrins uh papules um so you'd, you'd certainly be focusing on the on the face uh and on their elbows and knuckles and there's other rashes that you can see as well as sort of shawl signs of rash around the sort of shoulders the v sign in sun exposed areas on the anterior chest uh, wall there's a sort of uh, holster sign as well uh, on the sort of lateral aspect of the of the of the hip so there's a certain it can be tough um some patients do have a li- little bit of a malar sort of redness and that's just their complexion but usually in a in a in a typical dermatomyositis case it's not just the face you'll 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 often um uh, 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 you'll often see some involvement of of the extensor surfaces uh, like we like we um uh, like we discussed in this sort of v sign on the front of their chest uh, uh, wall um, uh, as well the other group of rashes is is in the anti synthetase syndrome and the classic one there being the mechanics hands so here you get it on the on the kind of uh, lateral aspect of the fingers is thickening um, uh, of the of the skin there and it's sort of all the way down the the lateral aspect particularly of the of the first uh, of your index uh, uh, finger um so you would be you would be looking um carefully uh, for that as well. There are other skin signs you can get in dermatomyositis, um, like ulcers um, um, and and splitting uh, of the skin uh, as well, which you'd see in more severe cases. And in rare cases, you get things like calcinosis as well, so you actually feel nodules beneath the skin, which the patients often complain of bitterly in terms of pain. Um, uh, So hopefully, hopefully that would cover most of the rashes I'd be looking for.
0: Okay, so that's, that's useful. So let's say for this case that we add in the information that there is your typical heliotrope rash and even gotchin's papules. So hmm. you mentioned a few different acquired diagnoses dermatomyositis B1, syndromes. So, hmm. what, what further tests based on that extra information, what might you be thinking of doing next?
1: So, dermatomyositis is one case where um, um, muscle biopsy is, is, is being performed less and less. And the primary reason for that is the availability of autoantibody testing. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can now in most hospitals get a line blot of myositis specific and myositis associated autoantibodies. And there's several that are very specific for dermatomyositis, so ME2 being one, NXP2 being another, uh, for example. So in a patient with a classic history, a classic rash and a ME2 antibody, for example, you're you're home and dry uh, diagnostically. I do usually check the CK you do get damasomyositis cases where they're myopathy, so they're just skin disease without any skeletal muscle involvement. Um, so that can, it just influences the treatment regimen you'd use because if it's purely skin disease, sometimes you can get away with just topical therapies. But usually there is skin, in, or usually there is muscle involvement, or at least in the patient's I see. Sometimes it is a little bit subclinical though, where they don't actually have much or any weakness their ck is elevated and if you scan their muscles you can see myoedema so sometimes it is a bit subclinical um, but i do uh, treat that um um, you know as if the patient was weak in effect because ultimately it's going to go that way if you if you don't treat them with systemic immunosuppression um neurophysiology you probably wouldn't need in this situation to be honest occasionally skin biopsies are done if if there's you know, you get the odd patients say with lupus, for example, you're not sure if it's lupus or dermatomyositis, or something confusing like that. But yeah, usually typical history, typical rash, an antibody present, you're home and dry, really.
0: So, would it be fair to say that with this story, but the antibody was negative, you might be thinking about the tests you mentioned about MRIs, potentially even biopsies?
1: But t- potentially, yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe about uh, 20% of confirmed dermatomyositis cases are seronegative so it doesn't exclude the diagnosis but you'd be a little bit more wary um and uh, you'd perhaps need some of those other tests uh you know and, and muscle biopsy being i guess being the most pertinent just to make sure that you're not missing something else that's causing their presentation uh the antibodies yeah certainly do help um and um it, it's like anything else really uh they can be negative, but it doesn't exclude dermatomyositis. And some people are starting to send that, the myositis line block as a, as a bit of a screening test. I would kind of guard against that. You do get quite a lot of false positives. Uh, and as I say, even in confirmed cases, it can be negative. So it, it, it should be used carefully as with any other investigation, really.
0: Trying to switch from, are there any other associated conditions with dermatomyositis, or any further tests you might need to consider?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the big worry is obviously underlying malignancy. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's several factors that make that a little bit more or less likely. So um, uh, increasing age at, at diagnosis tends to be uh, more associated with underlying malignancy. Um, presence of dysphagia, prominent dysphagia, again, is another factor. Certain antibody profiles are more associated with malignancy. So the TIF-1 gamma autoantibody tends to be associated with malignancy more than the other um, dm subtypes but ultimately most patients are at least going to have a baseline ct scan um, usually um, a mammogram uh in in females some tumor markers um testicular examination in in males and there's not really any clear guidelines about let's say it's negative should i repeat that in a few years we don't really know um most people probably would repeat it uh, maybe annually or, or, or after a couple of years Once you're five years down the line from symptom onset, if there's no cancer found at that point, the the likelihood of you finding one after that period is much reduced. Um, But in that first five-year period, you do need to be very vigilant for underlying malignancy uh, in adults with dermatomyositis. It's different with children. Uh, Juvenile dermatomyositis is not associated with cancer. Um, um, But uh, but obviously, in this case, it's it's an adult onset form.
0: And I guess just to finish this case off, so we've talked quite nicely through the investigations now. So how would you manage this sort
1: of patient? It looks like uh, there is significant muscle involvement. So I think we're going to need some systemic um, immunosuppression. And we'd normally follow similar paradigms for other autoimmune uh, neurological uh, diseases. Start with some prednisolone. Often you need uh, sort of one milligram per kilogram uh, or so. And you'd start some kind of steroid sparing agent like methotrexate or azathioprine something um, along those lines you tend to give the, the steroids at a high dose for about six weeks or so or at least until the ck is clearly coming down or if not normal or so before you start to then gradually wean that down um, you, you you really want the patient to be showing signs of improvement as well um, before you bring the steroids down too quickly one mistake that people can make is that they see the ck coming down they think oh well." I'll get the patient off the steroids now and the disease can can flare very very quickly. So uh, you just want to gradually uh, wean off the steroids, make sure that they are clinically getting better before you you do that uh, and get them on some kind of steroid-sparing medication. Um, For more severe cases or for patients with refractory disease, uh, there's various options available. We used to use quite a lot of cyclophosphamide. We're now uh, using, I think it's fair to say, a lot more IVIG and rituximab um, and um, uh, there are potentially other biologics that we uh, have access to as well for, for the more severe cases.
0: Okay and I guess you, you kind of answered this question to some extent from your answer but you mentioned CK being used to some extent as um, some prognostic value but obviously mapping that up with the clinical response so was is it fair to say that again that CK is, very, is useful in monitoring disease activity in these patients? <laughs>
1: it is useful uh, but it but it can um it can uh potentially confuse so it can come down much more quickly than any improvements in strength and we call that chemical resolution um and really you you should you shouldn't adjust your treatment based purely on ck resolution you should wait for the other elements uh, of disease activity assessment to improve as well um the uh when we're assessing these patients, we, we tend to look across several domains uh, and there is there is a standardized way of doing this called the IMAX core set measure for disease activities and there's six different aspects to it. And only one of them is the CK. There's two patient reported uh, elements to it. Um, and, th- and then uh, there's um, a, a physician, Uh, global assessment uh, a physician extra muscular assessment and then a a, a standardized manual muscle test assessment so you want to look really across those domains you'd never look just at the ck in in isolation Um, and the ck it's you know it's a fickle thing you know it can go up one day and down the next uh, just depending if uh you know the person might have done some strenuous exertion or something so uh don't don't ever base um you know big decisions uh relating to treatment on, on, on the CK in isolation.
0: Okay, great. That's great, thanks very much. So we'll move on now to the next case. So our next patient is a 62-year-old male who presents with an 18-month history of difficulty walking and weak grip. There's also been difficulty swallowing certain solid foods. He's got a history of hypertension on Ramipril only on examination there is wasting of the forearms with asymmetrical weakness of the finger flexors and the extensors he has no upper motor neuron signs so is again is there any further information that you'd like to know or is there any thoughts that might come to mind from
1: that vignette well I mean it's it's a pretty classic presentation isn't it Josh mm. I don't, uh, there's not many other things uh, uh this this could be um so the the, the um yeah, there's really not many diseases that cause this, this typical pattern of, of weakness where you've got weakness of, of, the, of the finger flexors and wrist flexors and then also of the knee extensors in combination often with dysphagia in, in, in sort of more elderly uh, uh, people. Uh, and that disease is, is inclusion body myositis. Um, I guess sometimes you can get caught out with things like motor neurone uh, disease uh, and things like that and when you when you do ask patients with IBM whether they were ever previously diagnosed with something else there's often a long list of all sorts of things um, particularly polymyositis so they've been treated for several years with steroids or and, and other immunosuppressants before the penny drops that, you know not getting any better and the more typical pattern of weakness has evolved um, so you, yeah you do uh, just have to be a little bit wary um, uh, in that in that sort of situation um, this this going back to what we were saying before about the sero-negative case you know seronegative dematomyositis is one thing you know at least you've got the rash to go on Sero-negative polymyositis is something altogether different because you've um you've that really could be anything um uh I- including ibm or including genetic and metabolic uh myopathies so you just have to be very careful in that scenario um and what would I? What would I do? Do next. Um, so, IBM is is one of the um, diseases where the the diagnostic criteria do rest upon histopathological findings. So, you, you kind of do need a, a muscle biopsy for IBM. Um, the the more recent diagnostic criteria have relaxed the 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 some of the requirements for um, you know uh, pathological findings. Um, in the sense you don't necessarily need to see uh, typical amyloid deposits, for example, uh, you can just see um, PM, you know, polymycin like inflammation in combination with the correct pattern of weakness. So if they've got the finger flexor weakness and the knee extensor weakness with some inflammation on their biopsy, then that's enough to. Uh, to, to make the diagnosis. So you, you, you'd you often be arranging a muscle biopsy, perhaps whilst you're waiting for that, you would check the CK. It's often modestly elevated, you know, three, 400 or something, and tends to drift down over time as the muscles uh, waste away. We do check their antibodies and there is this CN1A autoantibody, which is positive in about 40% of IBM cases, but it's not specific for IBM. You see it in other autoimmune diseases like Sjögren's syndrome, but um, it's interesting. Um, we don't really know what it means. Perhaps zero-positive patients have a little bit more of an aggressive disease course, but there's conflicting evidence um, on that. We often, again, do the neurophysiology, but um, I don't think it's, it's not necessarily required for diagnosis, but might just, again, help you exclude mimics like, like motor neuron disease again, uh, for example.
0: Sure. So that's quite yeah nicely finished, I guess, because you mentioned your differentials of this sounding quite classical for IBM. Motor neuron disease in the back of your mind, maybe less so if there are no upper motor neuron signs, but the neurophysiology would help with that. Yeah, you also mentioned about serum negative polymyositis, and just to push things a bit further, I guess on the biopsy, there might be polymyositis-like changes on a biopsy. So, yeah. is there ever any uncertainty regarding the diagnosis related to IBM or serum negative polymyositis?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it all really rests on the pattern of weakness. So in the IBM cases, the the inflammation can be not necessarily specific for IBM. You know, you 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 see similar um, similar patterns of of inflammatory change in in, in the other inflammatory uh, myopathies. In the in the sort of textbook IBM cases obviously you see those um inclusion bodies rimmed vacuoles, amyloid deposits and other proteinaceous deposits p62 and tdp43 and things but you don't necessarily need to to see those so what you have to do is go back to the to the patient and really um examine their pattern of muscle weakness um very carefully and yeah if you if you have a patient who you, who is sort of in the bracket of, of of polymyositis so that you know they've got proximal muscle weakness syndrome with a raised CK, but they don't have any antibody. You really need to sort of think carefully um, about what's going on. I mean, it could still be an inflammatory myopathy. So like I said, about 20% of cases are seronegative. It could be paraneoplastic. They could have an antibody that you've just not checked for. So HMG is often on a different uh, assay, for example, it's just not been checked for, or they could have a myositis mimic like a genetic myopathy or a metabolic myopathy so um you do have to be careful with these seronegative polymyositis cases and I say, I say that polymyositis in inverted commas cases
0: yeah, great and i guess maybe briefly to switch upon the management so if we're, if we're saying this patient is typical for ibm and we're saying that say a biopsy is performed to show typical changes is there any management for patients with ibm long term
1: well um the Trials of various uh, attempts um, at modifying the disease course have been unsuccessful. And that includes approaches uh, of suppressing the immune system, modulating the immune system with IVIG, uh, and then also uh, different approaches, you know, stimulating muscle growth with myostatin inhibitors. Nothing really has, I mean, there's been some small studies that shows slight uh, change in one direction or another, but nothing convincing. And certainly most, people treating IBM across the world would not try and suppress the immune system or give IVIG. There's pockets of different practice, particularly in Germany, they do treat IBM patients with IVIG um, uh, based on a small study that was done which had a potential effect on dysphagia. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, I think that evidence is is very weak and it's certainly not something we do uh, routinely. Um, I mean, it's 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 like a lot of other areas in neurology, just because you can't cure the disease doesn't mean there's nothing you can do. So we, we look... Carefully at their swallowing function and and try and get a peg tube or similar inserted, uh, you know, uh, ahead of time and think about their nutrition carefully. We try and get a good physiotherapist involved or get the patient into a neuromuscular centre for um, for exercise, um, uh, which I think can slow down the the, the progress. You, you can certainly you can certainly strengthen unaffected muscles um, and, and and allow those to compensate for the muscles that are that are weak. But I think even in the, in in the muscles that are affected by the disease progress process, you 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 can um, stabilize their strength for some uh, for some time. And there used to be this kind of dogma that if you've got myositis, you have to rest. You can't you know you mustn't do any exercise because you'll damage your muscles. But that really is not true, and has not been uh, borne out in in any in 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 any evidence. So uh, as long as um, You've got a sort of sensible physiotherapist on board. Uh, exercise um, is is important to do, and there's there's lots of other sort of aids and adaptations that you that, that patients with IBM can sometimes benefit from. So knee instability is a big problem. So knee braces, which can be sort of active devices as well, which sort of help stabilize the the knee as you as you're walking, um, uh, as well as other things to help with the issues of grip, uh, can often be helpful. So if you get a good orth, orthotist and or occupational therapist involved, that's that's really helpful uh, sometimes as well.
0: Okay, great, thanks very much. So um, we'll move on to the next patient. So we've got a 64 year old male. who was admitted to an MAU with a two month history of symmetrical proximal muscle cramping and weakness that then noticed his urine becoming darker. He was commenced on a torvostatin therapy six months ago for hypercholesterolemia. On examination, there was weakness of the proximal lower limb muscles. So, again, is, is there anything else you would like to know from this case vignette or is there any further investigations you'd like to consider?
1: So it sounds a little bit like, uh, when, you know, with the urine becoming dark, it sounds a, a little bit like the patient's going into rhabdomyolysis, um, which is unusual for inflammatory myopathies. You, you, you know, it's, it's not, not a common um, complication. Um, so, he, maybe in the back of my mind, although he's, he's a little bit old for it, but it's not impossible, you might ask about previous episodes of the urine becoming very uh, dark or having episodes suggestive of rhabdomyolysis. You do occasionally diagnose McArdles in in uh, older people. And like other metabolic problems, it, in the past, it can have had episodes of symptoms, but then it can become just a progressive, uh, permanent uh, myopathy uh, ra- rather than just those episodes of symptoms. So, you might ask about any previous episodes, although. Obviously, the big uh, elephant in the room here is that um treatment, um, uh, which, which does make you worry about some kind of statin-related um, myotoxicity. Um, and I guess that falls into three broad categories. There's a sort of milder end of the spectrum, where, you know, a bit of myalgia, slightly raised CK, CK. Um, uh, and uh, you stop the statin, it sort of goes, you know, the GPs are very used to managing that. There's the occasional patient that gets rhabdomyolysis, and it's not immune-mediated, it's just just direct statin-related toxicity, which induces rhabdomyolysis. And then there's the third category, which is very rare, but certainly is something we'll all probably see during our careers, is, is the immune-mediated necrotizing myopathy, Um which is, is uh, yeah, an immune-driven process associated with HMG-CoA reductase autoantibodies um, and will persist despite withdrawal of the, uh, of the statin. Um, so you, you might be thinking in that, um, in that kind of category for, for this patient.
0: Okay, great. So I guess uh, the three kind of phenotypes you might see with statin-induced myopathy, as it were, you would obviously want to withdraw the offending agents. The first milder patient you said GPs would be managed used to manage to so they might not darken your door concerning you as such. But I guess the second and third patients, the one who may both get rhabdomyolysis, one immune-mediated and one who isn't. Are there any differences between
1: those two types of patients? Um uh, well there can be. Um, so the when when the immune-mediated necroctasmopathy was First kind of um, described in relation to statin use, it was very much this kind of acute presentation, very much like this, uh, very much like this patient. But it, I think it's increasingly recognized that you can also you can also have this kind of slow burner presentation, more like a limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Um, so they, they can behave uh, differently, uh, the immune mediated form um, of, of, of statin related Uh, myotoxicity, whereas the rhabdomyolysis, you know, I guess by definition is a pretty acute phenomena. Um, Like I said, in in general, it's, it is unusual to get rhabdomyolysis from an inflammatory um, uh, myopathy. It, uh, it does occasionally happen, but that might lead me a bit more towards it being a, a, you know, a non-immune phenomena in this case, and you stop the satin and it'll get better and that'll be the end of it really. Um, And then I guess as a, question about how badly he needs the statin and whether you'd re uh, challenge him at some point in the in the future which we often need help from uh, from other people to uh, to look into really
0: sure okay so are there any other investigations i mean you mentioned it might be it's unusual for a new mediator to present with rhabdomyolysis, but mm. investigations that you might consider screening for anyway
1: yeah i, I mean i think i'd test the antibody hmg cro2 antibody and um uh, like like we uh, touched on before it's it's not on the line blot uh, it's done by Eliza um, so you do have to ask for it uh, separately um, if it, it would depend how things went whether you'd do some more to, you know if you stop the statin rehydrate and the, it obviously gets better very quickly then maybe you wouldn't need to go on and do a muscle biopsy but if there was any sort of suggestion um, otherwise that this wasn't just a, a toxic effect you'd you probably would go on to do a a um, uh, a muscle biopsy to look for those typical changes that you'd see like pr- quite prominent um, uh, necrosis, some complement activation, occasionally a macrophagic um, um, uh, uh, um, immune cell infiltrate. Um, so that would be, um, that would certainly be there in, in the mix. Um, and yeah, and then the question is whether you, whether you'd then go on to, uh, to treat the patient with immunosuppression um, or IVIG um and it, a lot of it just depends how it evolves i think in that first few days really uh, and it often sort of becomes quite clear um if the patient's just going to get better on their own with withdrawal of the statin or or not
0: okay and i guess the, the final point is could we you've talked to the management i guess of this review comprehensively anyway but the last thing as a presenting complaint of raptdamilysis in general mm. we've mentioned about toxin related being a reasonable common cause, but do you have any differential diagnosis of acute rhabdomyolysis?
1: Yeah, uh, well, there's there's a long list. Um, I guess there's a couple of like obvious things like muscle trauma and, and stuff like that, which you know hopefully would be uh, just clear uh, from the end of the uh, the end of the bed. And uh, and the other category uh, that uh, that I uh, see a fair amount is, is the is the metabolic uh, myopathy. so particularly the Glycogen storage disorders like um, like McArdle's um, disease, and then we see quite a bit of uh, fatty acid oxidation um, uh, defects as well. Um, so things like CPT2 deficiency. So the interesting thing is that um, the rhabdomyolysis is often precipitated by different uh, different uh, triggers in those two cases. So in the in the glycogen storage disorders, often short bursts of very intense exercise which cause muscle contracture and rhabdomyolysis whereas in the fatty acid oxidation defects is often quite long periods of low intensity exercise like sort of um cycling uh, long distance cycling or something like that which precipitates the rhabdomyolysis and it can also happen um in the context of uh fasting um and uh, sort of a systemic infection as well um, uh, so uh, uh, they'd be the other things I'd be thinking about in your, in your abdomyolysis uh, case. Okay, great. Thanks very much.
0: So there's got one more case to discuss. So we've got a 25-year-old female, presents with a long history of weakness. She was described as clumsy as a teenager and has progressively struggled with tasks such as carrying her children. There's no family history of any similar conditions and she was otherwise well. On examination there's wasting around the shoulder girdle and the thighs, with marked weakness of hip and shoulder movements, with relatively preserved strength distally. So again, is there any information you would like to know from that, or
1: is there any differentials that come to mind? So this is a this is a yeah this is a, a difficult one. Um, so it, I mean it would be the same approach as before. You know could this be acquired or could it be genetic? So asking those similar questions about any any sort of suggestion that this could be an inflammatory arthropathy or toxic arthropathy endocrine myopathy or, 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 or or something like that. I guess we're getting a, a we're getting a suggestion here that this is um, um, a long-standing process, which is gradually getting worse over time. I certainly want to know more about uh, her motor milestones uh, during childhood. I certainly want to know more about the family history um, as well. Um, uh, that would that I think that would be a, a useful um, starting point. Um, before thinking about what to do next. And the, the problem, I guess, if we're, if we're moving towards genetic myopathies with limb girdle weakness, it, it's, it's like a, it's a sort of poor differentiator, really. The list of potential causes there is, is pretty long. Um, but you some of the things that do cross your mind, you, you, you know, you might start even with um, manifesting carrier of a dystrophinopathy. So, you know, Becca Duchenne, Obviously, the classic presentation is, is young boys. But female carriers can manifest, often with myalgia uh, and weakness. So that's often worth considering. Um, you know, the, it doesn't sound typical, but you always remember the two common genetic myopathies, myotonic dystrophy and FSH. Um, there isn't that suggestion of, of, of myotonia or distal weakness, but you'd certainly look for it, um, And uh, around FSH, obviously you get the scapular girdle, shoulder girdle weakness, um, and you can get some hip girdle weakness, but it does tend to be more the um, knee flexors uh, and a foot drop that you get there. Um, But you'd certainly be looking for scapular winging and facial weakness when you're examining. And then I guess finally, at least finally in my mind, uh, you're you're into the, the limb girdle muscular dystrophies. And the problem here is there's just like, there's just too many conditions to to memorise, but the the common common ones in the UK are um, calpainopathies, dysferlinopathies, and anoctaminopathies. Which kind of you know some people seem to be able to differentiate them clinically. I think it's very tough. Uh, calpainopathies have a lot more contractures. Um, uh, dysferlinopathies you often get this posterior calf uh, wasting pattern. Um, anoctaminopathies Patients tend to be a bit older um, and it tends to be posterior thigh that's predominantly affected. So you, you sort of try and differentiate them. But uh, this might be a case where you'd be thinking about early genetic testing uh, to look into this in more detail. Um, of course, first, you just want to make sure that you are dealing with a muscle problem. the patient will probably still have a CK level done. You probably do an EMG just to check it, it, it's it, it's myopathic or at least not showing some, some other um, other, 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 sort of uh, alternative explanation for the problem, um, and then of course uh, in the past it would have been muscle biopsy first, but now um, often we're, we're we're doing gene panel uh, testing or whole genome sequencing to look into this sort of uh, problem. Um, the, the 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 thing you have to be a little bit careful about is that um, the um, the gene panels don't necessarily test for everything. So for example, FSH is a, is, a, is a different test dystrophy can be a different depending on what panel you request um and sometimes um you know the the tandem repeat disorders and things like that aren't routinely um um uh, detectable or reported on when you when you uh, when the test methodology used this whole genome sequencing so sometimes you do it's not a case of just say oh we'll just do some whole genome sequencing you don't have to think anymore you do still need to phenotype the patient and put the results in context and make sure that other uh, genetic explanations have been considered uh, when the result comes back.
0: Yeah, so I guess you mentioned some clinical clues in you. She was talk- nicely talking through the differentials by like myotonic dystrophy or FSHD and those things you may pick up rather than just it being the proximal weakness as a mm. whole syndrome. I guess if, if that might help guide further genetic testing, as you said, so if you, you know, see some foot drop or facial weakness, you might think FSH, if you if you just saw a patient like this who had more of a proximal pattern, and you were maybe then thinking, well, I can't see anything else. Should we go down the limb girdle route? Would it be a case then of screening for the panel itself, or would you normally go for a more targeted approach? Uh, I
1: I'd, I'd I'd go for the uh, panel. I mean, you you you, you do have to. Um, there's two main panels that you might think about in this situation, because there's a sort of congenital myopathies panel, which we've not really touched on um, uh, today. And then there's a limb girdle panel. And then there's a sort of super panel of, of where you do uh, whole genome uh, sequencing and it covers several other things as well. Um, so it, I, in a sort of undifferentiated uh, myopathy like this, I think you, you have to do panel testing rather than just say, oh, I think this is a dysferlinopathy and try and just test the dysferlin gene or something like that. Uh, I think I think I would be looking at some form of uh, genetic panel and, and probably the limb girdle muscular dystrophy panel, which uh, is, is done through the uh, Genomics England uh, system currently, if, you, if you're in England. I'm not sure who this podcast goes to, but obviously there's different systems elsewhere.
0: Sure. So you, may, so you may perhaps reserve specific testing for when there's more of a genetic certainty, for example, if there's a strong family history of a certain condition.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's some things you do need to select a test for individually. It's not necessarily on other panels. So, um, yeah, and often it's it, it, it's those cases where it's just you can quite clearly make the diagnosis clinically. FSH is one, myotonic dystrophy is another, oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy is perhaps another. Um, but but otherwise, yeah, you, you're probably looking at the at the at the panel, um, and uh, and and taking it from there. There are other caveats which we probably don't have time to discuss. Uh, uh, you know, particularly thinking about mitochondrial cytopathies as well, because the, the problem, obviously, with our genetic testing, usually it's it's obviously done from from blood from DNA derived from white blood cells, uh, whereas uh, genetic uh, cytopathies uh, have this issue of heteroplasmy where different tissues can express uh, the mitochondrial genome uh, differentially so um, in those cases you need sometimes you need a, a tissue of, of of interest so you know actually doing genetic studies on muscle tissue for example or, or um, um, uh, uh, and that sort of thing so that's that's another caveat sometimes I think about with genetic testing uh, I guess the point I'm making is it's it's not as simple as just um ticking a box on a form and, and thinking everything will be sorted out because unfortunately you'll just get a whole list of variants of uncertain significance and be no further on uh, with, with the diagnosis
0: and i guess it's nice to still keep a degree of you know clinician judgment is there, of what you're actually testing for rather than just sending off everything for the results come back
1: i i i think so and you know um and it's not just a case of um uh, patting our own backs or whatever and there is a there is a an issue of underdiagnosis of of genetic myopathy so i think i think um uh, in general the, the the more widespread availability of of good quality genetic testing is, is a really a, a big step forward uh, but it just has to be carefully um, interpreted
0: okay, great well thank you very much i think that's all our cases so um i'll wrap up this podcast and thank you very much for your time today
1: great thanks
0: josh Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.